Blaze Radio Network. And now, Reform This with Dr. Sudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. It is always an honor to be with all of you, and thank you for joining me again. And uh, if you're looking for a frank, open, honest conversation about political Islam, Islamist terrorism, national security, free speech, all the things that uh, have been uh, preceding, actually, the, the, the whole woke and wokeism culture. This is the program in which I try to do that. And uh, last episode, I had our first guest in a long time, and uh, Esra Nomani joined us. She's the author of Woke Army. And if you didn't listen to it, you didn't uh, catch it, uh, look back in your app and uh, find the episode and take a listen because we covered a lot of ground. A little over 20 years of post 9 11 activism uh, against the Islamist, against the Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups, and um, shared some of the milestones, if you will, to, to grab from the uh, Sayyid Qutb uh, uh, passage. Uh, name of his book, Milestones, that looked at how he wanted to defeat the West, how he wanted to advance Islamism and the caliphate as sort of the founding father of the Muslim Brotherhood. Well, the anti-Islamist movement, the pro-freedom, pro-liberty movement of the Muslim community and the Muslim reform movement has also started to develop a few of its own milestones from our foundation of each of our organizations after 9-11, small startups that uh, some of which are still small, still growing. And also then with the founding of our Muslim reform movement in 2015. And uh, bring us now to 2023, post-COVID pandemic, with the struggles of what the far left, the progressivists, tearing apart our country's cultural foundations, theological an ideological harmony that is Americanism, and and yet all of that cooperation, all of that philosophy is being thrown out the window for a victim culture, for a culture in which identity politics rule and wokeism is lifted to the top, and anyone who even dares to question it is marginalized and at times destroyed. And there was no better expert to talk about that with than Esra Nomani. And she, in her book, Woke Army, analyzes and dissects some of the assassination attempts, character assassination attempts, that have been part and parcel of the Islamist movement. Now, she wrote a piece soon thereafter that appeared in the Federalist that basically gets to the core of the debate, the issue about free speech. What are the limits of free speech? What are the uh, uh, battlefronts of free speech? And she talks about how activists weaponize Section 230 for character assassination. And I would highly recommend that you take a look at her piece in The Federalist, and I'm going to highlight a few things and, and talk to you about what I see as where I hope Um, Supreme Court rulings, legal traditions, and uh, understanding of what is and what is not protected speech 
if it is going to change at all in the United States, uh, um, what those protections should be. Esra notes and opens, on November 13, 2015, Muslim militants slayed Nahomi Gonzalez, a 23-year-old American student amid terrorist attacks across Paris that killed 130 people and injured 400. Soon after, the Islamic State took credit for the attacks, writing, The scent of death will not leave their nostrils as long as they partake in the Crusader campaign, as long as they dare to curse our prophet, unquote. Earlier this month, lawyers for the Gonzalez family argued before the Supreme Court that social media companies, quote-unquote, aided and abetted the terrorists by providing them a forum overseas. And as Ezra points out, and I hope to also, the Supreme Court should rule in favor of the Gonzalez family while Congress closes loopholes that allow social media platforms to avoid responsibility for what they publish. But this is not just a problem overseas. Social media companies also allow masked radicals from our own Muslim community here in the United States to, with free reign on their platform, shielding extremists and terrorists overseas from criticism. One of their lines of attacks, as she notes, is to allege their targets are insulting Islam and that the Prophet Muhammad and Muslims using, are using a made-up word, they use the made-up word, Islamophobia, and that the tactic is heralded this week in the third observance of the international Day to Combat Islamophobia on March 15. The UN officially recognizes the day after years of lobbying by hardline Muslim communities and countries in the Organization of the Islamic Cooperation, today's neo-caliphate, which uses Islamophobia to deflect discussions about Muslim radicalization. So I, I cannot underscore how important this is, and Ezra's points are, are key. And we're going to get to the Islamophobia day in a bit, and also talk about what Ilhan Omar, as part of the Muslim Brotherhood global movement and her position as an Islamist advocate, um also is pushing for legislation in that regard. But I think it's interesting. The key point for all of you, I hope you would agree with and to take home to your families, to your legislators, to your um, congregations, your communities. If on the one hand, the social media platforms say that it's private. They can say who can speak and who cannot. They can remove speech that is wrong or, or offensive or whatever it might be because it's a private platform. And those in response are arguing that, well, it's, it's, a, it's like a, a utility and that it is uh, an oligopoly and there isn't that much competition. So therefore, it becomes a public space that might be run by a private company. That's the response of those, I think rightfully, who say that free speech limitations are un-American. That debate limitation because they determine what is science or what is not. When you question a vaccine, when you question a shuttering of businesses and pandemics, when you question the masking of children and otherwise, that somehow they say, we say, I say, this is a public space that, that um, it, it demands a, a threshold similar to what the federal government would protect based on the Constitution, if not identical, let alone similar. But yet, they on the one hand, these companies want to push back on that and say they set the rules as a private company. And on the other hand, when they're place 
their platform, their business becomes a highway, a thoroughfare for the most militant radical Islamists in the world of ISIS in which they glorify heinous attacks of terror, then somehow to limit that, they will respond using Section 230. And as Ezra points out, at the heart of the Supreme Court case are 26 words from Section 230C1 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act that Internet companies used to protect themselves from liability for the words published on their platforms. Section 230 states, quote, No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. So, bad actors, terrorists, big tech, they know that big tech hides behind Section 230 and they use that to shield, they use that shield to shield themselves and to weaponize the internet. In 2018, Esra filed a defamation lawsuit against her anonymous attackers. And she sued the internet providers that gave these character assassins a global stage. Twitter lawyers at Perkins Koi fought me, fought her, as she notes, citing the free speech rights of their character assassins. Google and Facebook ignored her subpoenas, but GoDaddy, which registers websites and other companies like Discus that runs commensurate boards, didn't. And she received all of the details and the receipts from GoDaddy's regarding Loonwatch and who owned it and who presented it and who was paying for it, and it turned out to be Care Chicago, Ahmed Rehab, and a number of other prominent Islamists that were hiding behind Loon Watch's anonymity in order to pretend to be some type of sheepish free speech organization. So this is the key. From multiple points, from multiple different lenses in which you can look at this. Yes, these large companies are oligopolies that need to be regulated to where free speech is protected because otherwise they will not do so and they will remove our ability to to use their platforms for true free speech. And on the other hand, since they are oligopolies, they cannot be given a, a free pass whenever somebody happens or someone or some communities happen to be terrorized or destroyed or murdered or slain as a result of the direct call for terror. And the American, you know, American law doesn't need to be rewritten. This is established in, in known Supreme Court cases, whether it's the 19th century KKK case about imminent danger and speech that calls for imminent calls for death, that everything else is protected, and that ultimately they had the free speech to preach grotesque fascism as long as, and hate and bigotry as long as it did not call for direct acts of violence, and that ultimately, similar to other cases like the Westboro Baptist Church that that was uh, doing the, the horrifically grotesque protests in front of the funerals of slain veterans, the court also ruled in their favor that those were peaceful protests that were as grotesque as they are protected because it is the grotesque speech that tests 
the limits of our free speech. But when ISIS calls for the murder, the slain, the destruction, the slaughter of human beings, that is not protected speech. And they need to be held accountable when they miss it. So if they need to be restrained in these huge media conglomerates that now control hundreds of millions, if not billions, of interactions a day with human beings, and there's only a few of them that you can count on two hands, now with the debate happening on TikTok, with the debate happening on liabilities, with Twitter, on Facebook, with the debate happening on Facebook working with government to subvert against the American people. There are many fronts in this debate about free speech. And I fall on the side of unadulterated free speech that is, however, held accountable for those who turn a blind eye to acute acts calling for violence. So, no, you cannot use platforms to declare that you're going to go and pillage malls and call it an anti-racism Black Lives Matter movement. That's calling for acts of violence. You cannot be ISIS and then call for the protection of the prophet and the slain murder of those who say anything untoward. That's not protected speech. However, you can criticize the powers that be. You can call for reform within Islam and not be castigated and have your assassination, have, have your character assassinated by anonymous folks. They need to be revealed and then we can have a debate. And in Ezra's book, and so often as we've said in the Muslim Reform Movement and I at the American Islamic Forum for Democracy have called for debates, for open discussion and discourse between the Islamists and the non-Islamists, the theocrats and the liberty minded Muslims, and unfortunately that's been met with deaf ears, it's been met with little support, and actually it's been met with those who are advocates for this, as we saw on March 15th, the UN Declaration of the Day to Combat Islamophobia. And yes, there were hearings in Congress that somehow the left, the Democrats, decided to um, have their hearings at the UN and elsewhere that talked about this day of Islamophobia. And not only are we calling for debate, but as Ezra's notes, free speech protections do not extend to libel, do not extend to smearing and, and the publication of false and fabricated and defamatory information, and especially under anonymous, non-traceable names. Overseas and domestically, internet companies must be held responsible for giving propagandists a megaphone, including when they are Muslim supremacists like a cadre of terrorists of the mind who took the names of fish and loon watch to wage a year-long war on America, protecting years-long war, protecting terrorists like the killers of Naomi Gonzalez. And again, I ask you to read Esther's book, Woke Army. This is the battlefront the battlefront of free speech. Most of it is large companies that are becoming woke, that are suppressing free speech. Conservative judges that speak at Stanford University and are shouted down with the heckler's veto that has long been proven to be one of the most absurd and disgusting 
mechanisms of suppression of free speech and actually the the end of modernity when you have folks that will shout down their op- opponents where they will drown out the voices of those who are possibly dissidents, who are possibly minorities, who are possibly more vulnerable because the mob, the masses don't agree with them. The true sign of a liberal democracy is one that will protect its most vulnerable voices, its most marginalized voices, whether they be extreme disgusting or whether they be possibly heralding a new a new day, a new horizon. And this is where we are, folks. We're having the big debate. Who's liable? Are these big companies liable when they let violent speech run rampant? Are our colleagues liable for defamation and liable against Muslim reformers here in America? What will happen in these court cases? CARE has lost many cases, including the one here that uh, was settled by the Council on American-Islamic Relations in Arizona when uh, Professor Professor was uh, wrongly libeled about being an Islamophobe, an anti-Muslim, and then he was removed from his position. And then a year and a half later, it was settled, where CARE, the, originally, the original plaintiff, was actually found to have no case. Case was dismissed twice, including by an appellate court, and then Professor Nick's case was his countersuit was awarded a settlement. So repeatedly the courts, because of the core principles in the United States that are clear on our First Amendment, have so far been ruling in favor of free speech, in favor of dissidents, and against the corporate establishment that wants to control our communities. Now hopefully they will find that when it came to that Gonzalez family who their loved one was murdered and slain by ISIS. It will hold the internet company, Twitter and whatever else, responsible for that. I was a little concerned when I heard the justices say during some of the arguments, Supreme Court, that uh, this was a little too complicated for them. It's not complicated. If a newspaper publishes something on its paper, whether it's a letter to the editor or whatever, and that letter to the editor says... That person is calling for violence and rewarding in God and heaven those who who protect the name of the prophet. That is not just that individual that should be uh, um, vilified and arrested, but rather the newspaper also for publishing that letter. So Twitter is a newspaper. It's a platform. It's a media platform. And as big as it is, and it's multi-multi-billions, it should be accountable. And then, speaking of Islamophobia Day, on the first day of Ramadan, Ilhan Omar introduced a bill to condemn anti-Muslim hate. First, let me step back and wish all of my fellow Muslim brothers and sisters a blessed Ramadan. We're, we're already a few days into it. It started, uh, Ramadan is the ninth month of our holy calendar, our lunar calendar. And in that month of 30 days, we fast, as I've talked to you before on this program, from sunrise to sunset, nothing to eat, drink, and 
otherwise, including water from sunrise to sunset. And then in the evening, we partake in a large meal and rehydration and thank God and hope for and pray for atonement of that which we have been thinking about through the day of withholding food and drink. And it's a great equalizer, no matter how wealthy, no matter how healthy, no matter how unstressed stressed you are, it's a great equalizer that we all, as human beings, realize by the end of the day after fasting that just like fasting in the Lentian fast of Christianity or the Yom Kippur fast of Judaism or any of the fasts of the great faiths, there is a reason that we do that to demonstrate our will, our belief in God and our free will. So a blessed Ramadan to my Muslim uh, friends. Back to politics and Islamism and, and, and theopolitical debate and rancor. So she introduced this bill to condemn anti-Muslim hate, supposedly, on this day of Islamophobia, March 15th at the UN, catering to these 57, most of which oppressive autocracy, theocracies that are Muslim-majority countries that care less about their citizens and that are ruled by people that are actually the most Islamophobic in the planet, which are Muslims that treat other Muslims as slaves and as not as equal citizens, but as slaves of the state. Supposedly, Ilhan Omar did this bill on Islamophobia to honor the 51 Muslims killed in the terrorist attack in Christchurch, New Zealand, back four years ago. And she introduced a resolution in which, in 2019, that that attack represented the rise of Islamophobia in the world. And Huffington Post, that bastion of fair reporting, said they were the first to see this resolution and they wanted to be the first to report about it. And certainly, my prayers, and as I was actually in Australia when this event happened, when that uh, terror attack happened, there's no doubt that there is a certain amount, a palpable amount of bigotry that exists against Muslims, also against the Jewish community, anti-Semitism, and against other minorities. But the point here is this day of Islamophobia. The point here is not calling it anti-Muslim bigotry, but calling it Islamophobia because they're trying to suppress free speech. They're trying to, through an Orwellian way, use language that prevents an actual debate within the faith community about all the other reasons where, yes, there may be some bigotry against Muslims, but for the most part, Muslims are freer, are, are happier, more able to do what they choose to do with their monies, their families, their communities in the West than they are in any so-called Muslim-majority country. And yet Omar said, as we begin the holy month of Ramadan, we must affirm that all people of faith should have the right to worship without fear. The attack in Christchurch motivated by an extremist ideology of white supremacy, anti-Muslim hate, and the so-called replacement theory resonates deeply for Muslims in nearly every corner of the globe. And then she goes on to describe what happened in Christchurch. And by the way, the New Zealand government removed that replacement theory treatise and it can no longer be found anywhere. Is that really smart? It really wasn't. 
a way to defeat bad ideas is by ripping them up. The replacement theory is a horrifically disgusting concept, um, but there may be some areas there that need to be flushed out and debated publicly because of the amount of people. And the more you push things underground, the more history has shown that it actually fuels those ideas to become rampant and end up being ideas that create fascists, communist movements that take over various governments. But that's another topic for another time. I think it is disgusting that Ilhan Omar uses this attack to push forth the Islamophobia anti-blasphemy movement, the Islamist movement that she failed miserably to pass through the house where she wanted to create a perch of a caliph in the State Department that would filter what was bad speech or, or harmful speech against Muslims. Yes, she wanted that passed. And look at my piece from a couple of years ago called The American Caliph that I wrote for the Center for Security Policy. But yes, that's what she wants to do, is ultimately prevent speech that in any way debates some of the central parts of political Islam and the Islamist movements like the Muslim Brotherhood. And that's why she wanted to recognize this day. And, you know, I have to tell you that um, we in the Muslim Reform Movement need to also declare March 15 to be something else, perhaps about the liberation of the women of Iran, about the liberation of the prisoners of conscience in Saudi Arabia, the liberation of the prisoners of Hadood Sharia in Pakistan, and the liberation of all those victims of theocracy and autocracy in Syria, Iraq, and elsewhere from Muslim majorities. Maybe that's what we'll do for 2024, March 15, to juxtapose who the real victims are of anti-Muslim bigotry from within. Last, I want to talk to you about sort of films that are on the cutting edge. Yes, on the cutting edge. And we saw recently there is a piece uh, about the Cannes Film Festival that talked about how Europe has been stepping in to support edgy Muslim stories. Now, on the one hand, I can tell you as an activist and somebody who wants to yesterday prevent the platforms, prevent the growth, the heinous growth of the foundations upon which religious theocracies like the Iranian Khomeinists, like the Wahhabists and the royal family of Saudi Arabia, like the Islamist of movements of the Muslim Brotherhood and elsewhere and the AKP of Turkey want to, as dissidents, as dissenters, expose and hopefully create movements that begin to destroy the power, the finances, and otherwise that these governments and these movements have. But having said that, our, is comedy, is our films a way to begin this process? Absolutely. Now, sometimes going to be on pushing the margins of culture to where it is an anathema to those of us that might be working in a lifetime against political Islam and Islamic theocracy and Islamic state and Islamic Sharia imposition. 
But also there is something to be said that the, the cultural um, the cultural obstacles that currently prevent real debate need to be faced, need to be addressed. And as the report out in the news this week said, while the final five in the international category at the Oscars ended up being mostly Eurocentric, the shortlist was one of the most diverse, especially notable are the number of edgy stories set in different Muslim societies. They come not only from the Arab world, such as Morocco's submission, The Blue Captain, helmed by Miriam Tuzani, or Adam, but also Denmark with The Holy Spider, from Helmer Ali Abbas, Border, and Sweden with The Cairo Conspiracy, The Boy from Heaven, directed by Tarek Saleh. There's also Saim Sadiq's debut feature, Joyland, from Pakistan, but it is a Pakistan-India-U.S. production. For the past several decades, filmmaking in the Nordic country has been enriched by first and second generation or emigrant talents with a hyphenated identity. For example, Stockholm-born director-writer Salah's father is Egyptian and his mother Swedish. He draws on that heritage, in particular that of his paternal grandfather, for the political thriller The Cairo Conspiracy. And that was his fifth theatrical feature and winner of the Screenplay Award at the 2022 Cannes Film Festival. The the Sweden-France-Finland production is noted to be about a gifted student who becomes a pawn in a ruthless power struggle between Egypt's religious and political elite. The film is about a post and past future colliding and the people that get crushed in between. And, and as the story unfolds in some of its summaries, in the closed world of Cairo's Al-Azhar University, right? That is the ministry of, of religion for the entire Islamic State, the epicenter of power of Sunni Islam and an establishment that his grandfather attended. And as the Egyptian security service plots to influence the election to the next grand imam, although the film convincingly captures the look and atmosphere of bustling, noisy Cairo, and the rarefied cloistered environs of the university, the, the production was not able to shoot out in fully in, in Egypt. In point of fact, Saleh had been on an Egyptian security service list of undesirables since his previous for future, feature, the Nile Hilton incident. Ultimately, the Cairo conspiracy was filmed in Turkey, where the production was able to use Istanbul's Suleimania mask as a stand-in for Al-Azhar. And uh, the producer Salah acknowledged that as a Swede, he has more power than Egyptian filmmakers to portray aspects of his father's complex country, which, like other countries, is unable to be reduced to one truth. And then he notes, quote, My film is not a criticism of Islam. It is not about exposing some dark side of the religion, but rather about understanding the power and knowledge as a liberating or an imprisoning force. How true is that? How often have we not said that? Have I not said that on this program? That it's not about criticizing all of a faith, but rather of exposing some of the cancers within. Saleh notes that he understands perfectly well why Muslims are suspicious of how their religion is represented in the West. He said he himself grew up surrounded by malicious prejudices and attempts to portray us Muslims as monsters, he says. But nevertheless, I didn't think Islam needed to be defended. 
I've never seen a film about Islam that is simply a film. There's always an opinion for or against. He just wanted to film without judgments or blinkers. What about the other film, Holy Spider, from the Cannes Film Festival? And I think it's also worth discussing. Religion inspires a struggle of a different sort than the Iran-born, Denmark-based Abbasi's Holy Spider that won the actress kudos for Zara Mir Ibrahimi at the 2022 Cannes competition. The Denmark-Germany-Sweden-France production spins a semi-fictional narrative around a real person. The Iranian serial killer Saeed Hanai. Hanai was a devout Shia Muslim and former soldier who fancied himself on a mission from God as he killed 16 female sex workers in Iran's holy city of Meshed between 2000 and 2001. Abbasi and his co-writer Afshin Kamran Bahrami dramatize the events, adding a fictional story about a female journalist who helps bring Hanai to justice. Abbasi was still living in Iran in the beginning of the 2000s when Hanai was caught and put on trial. And the story caught the attention of the writers during the trial. And in a normal world, there's no doubt, the producers said, that a man who had killed 16 people would be seen as guilty. But here it was different. A portion of the public and the conservative media began to celebrate Hanai as a hero. They upheld the idea that Hanai simply had to fulfill his religious duty to clean the streets of the city by killing these dirty women. This was when the idea of making the film came to me. Although Abbasi was initially in talks with Iranian authorities about filming in Meshed, he wound up shooting in Jordan. And I'm man Jordan. It was vital to me, he said, that we recreate Meshed's underbelly in a satisfactory way. And Jordan had everything we were looking for. It's a relatively nondescript place and resembles almost any part of the Middle East, depending upon where you look. As a Danish filmmaker telling an Iranian story outside of Iran, Abbas, like Salah, had the freedom to show everyday life in a more realistic way than Iranian productions required to observe the quote of hijab. And he says, quote, the taboos that are never broken in Iranian films include nudity, sex, drug use, and prostitution. But those things remain a big part of Iranian society. And they are relevant to his story, even part of its atmosphere. The character of the killer is played by the talented stage and screen actor Mahdi Bejstani, who, Abbas, he said, put his Iranian career in peril by appearing in the film. He explains Western audiences didn't have a frame of reference for the risks he is taking with this role, but it's the equivalent of a Hollywood star playing a pedophile who commits pedophilic acts in the movie. He's also trying to humanize a very distasteful person, which is another risk. Indeed, after the Cannes screening, threats forced Vegistani's relocation to Europe. Finding a leading female performer for the part for the journalist proved even more complicated. Abbasi cast a young actress from Iran, but shortly after she arrived in Jordan for rehearsal, she got cold feet as she realized that she would likely lose her Iranian career. And she backed out six days before the shoot commenced. So the director then turned to the Paris-based Amir Ibrahimi. His casting director had been part of the project for nearly three years. She's an experienced actress whose career in Iran had imploded a decade earlier after her boyfriend shot and shared an intimate tape. 
Abbasi rewrote the character around her and the experience, both personal and professional, that Amir Ibrahimi brought to the part was critical to landing her the Cannes Acting Award. So fascinating. This story is just amazing in how I think, and I, I hope it becomes available to us to see this, that it covers a lot of the areas of cultural hypocrisy, sexual deviancy and, and illegalities and, and where where the government, who knows, did they turn a blind eye? Did they allow this to happen? Did whatever it might be, things that go unsaid while these crimes happened. And now they're on the screen. The closeted homosexuality of a married tailor who falls for his apprentice in the Medina of Saleh makes for daring content in the Blue Caftan, a Morocco, France, Belgium, Denmark production, daring because same-sex sexual relationships are illegal in Morocco. And director-writer Tuzani's sensitive humanist drama captured the critics' award of Cannes' uncertain regard section as well as numerous audience prizes during its festivals. The Blue Caftan, the third of these edgy European Muslim cultural in-your-face movies, represents a paradigm shift in the Arab world. Producer and script collaborator Nabil Ayush says there's a definitely a new tendency in Arab cinema to tackle sensitive subjects in a more frontal manner, ignoring certain political or religious taboos inherent in this region of the world. This new freedom of tone is salutary and reveals the dynamism of Arab societies. Also, more and more women are going behind the camera, Miriam being one of the best examples, succeeding in making it all the way to the top in major festivals. And I thank Variety for their write-up here and and uh, uh, note that you can review their write-up on Films Awards, February 8, 2023, from Variety. So I hope if you learn anything from Reform This, it is that we push the edges of culture, of ideas, of the establishment, and push for reform to modernity, for values, for ethics, for honesty, and confront those who think just because they have a beard and long robe that somehow they are more educated, more savvy with what the world can tolerate and what it cannot and what we can say and what we cannot. So I hope... All of you share this podcast with your friends. Share the ideas in a conversation around the dinner table at your iftars during Ramadan. As you come together as families, as communities, you not only ask the simple questions of how are you and follow up with the small talk of, oh, fine, everything's good. No. What are you not talking about in the community that you should? What are some of the root causes of bigotry, of of racism and and who are we not talking about that is manifesting these hateful ideas violence and other things that truly we should be honest and not hypocritical about this is your friend Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Share this with your friends. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R and also at Reform This Radio. Take care and God bless. We'll see you soon.
stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.